welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Mike, I really enjoyed your book, Resilience by Design, and there's, there's a, a number of concepts I'd love to explore in greater depth. But firstly, what compelled you to write the book? Is it the sense that you know the more people I speak to, more people report feelings of overwhelm, of languishing, of, 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 of anxiety. Is that what prompted you to lead this, just that we are less resilient as a society now? Well, as a, I'm going to need two hours to answer just that question. Um, what prompted us to write the book? It, primarily, our business at the time, the business I was in uh, five years ago when we decided to start writing it, um, is a company called Frontline Mind. So my background, I've been a coach since I was, uh, since 2003. Prior to that, I was a, I was a full-time climbing bum. I traveled the world. I dropped out of school at 16 and I traveled the world making money as best I could, just enough to survive to go climbing. And I spent over a decade climbing in some of the most beautiful places in the world. And bearing in mind, I come from a little council house where I didn't, uh, nobody in my family had been further than uh, Weymouth. Uh, let, let alone overseas. So uh, at 16, going on a, a global adventure for a decade was just mind-blowing. And um, so I became a coach in 2003, 2004, and my work as a coach over time got more and more drawn towards working with frontline agencies, so um, firefighters, police, people who were dealing with quite... Um, critical incidents. I also worked with a large, well, I say large, I worked with 11 members of the British SAS and did some work with them um, and around PTSD and then also some training with different military groups. And then I went to America and I worked with the US Marine Corps and got probably the only program, uh, well, I know it was the, the only ever program that, um, that really worked with the US Marine Corps on resilience and also worked with their recon training departments for breath hold. And we increased their breath hold by there's a video online, actually, you can see it. And I think it was in some cases 300% uh, and got all of these recruits being able to do stuff that they didn't do. Um, and so in working with all those frontline groups, military, police, firefighters, ambulance, etc., what you hear again and again and again and again, the pattern is people using the term stress. And a lot of the time they'll use that term inaccurately it might be something else they're experiencing but if you look at the data you'll see i believe it's the uh, the world health organization says some that stress costs the economy something like 300 billion dollars a year just in the us alone from sick days time off um, and the likes i think it's over 90 percent of of gp or doctor visits are related to stress and so you start realizing that there's a, a, a boiling pot of people not knowing how to do the opposite of stress out there in the world. Now, we were also prompted, although we were a bit late, uh, we were prompted to write the book because of what happened with lockdown. 
right? And with COVID. And so we wrote the book through COVID and it got published after COVID. COVID. And I actually think if the book had been available before COVID, we'd have, we'd have sold a bazillion copies. Uh, as it was, by the time everyone was done with it, people just wanted to go and party and let their hair down and uh, and the likes. So um, the timing was off on on in that regard. But it is a, I'm looking at it here, it's the one copy I've got left. I brought 50 copies to Bali and they've all gone. Um, it It is designed to be an evergreen book. It's not, you know, it's, it's not fashionable. It is, there is, there is wisdom in here that's thousands of years old. There's, as you probably realize from reading it, there's over 600 references, 450 from scientific papers. So it's, so it's evidence backed and it's, um, it's written with real experience in mind because you can look at papers from academia until you're blue in the face, but very, very rarely do they actually give you steps to be able to make any difference in your life. And so my my co-author, Ian Snape, who is a professor and has uh, multiple degrees and his PhD is in a very obscure type of data analytics and he analyzes um, ice cores in the Antarctic and the likes, or used to. So he's a proper professor, a proper boff, a proper academic. I'm not. I don't come from an academic background. I come from a purely experiential background, rock climbing, coaching, working with people. And so we merged those two positions, though Ian's less academic these days, we merged those two positions in the book so that um, it's full of practical uh, techniques and patterns for people to be able to actually apply it and then also satisfy the academics and the left brainers or the left hemispheres um, who want to know that there's an evidence base. Um, and I say that noting that the majority of left brainers your number one task with someone like that who experiences stress but wants academia is to just get them to try like try some of the techniques just try to breathe in fact for most people who are very left hemisphere dominant it's just notice you have a body carrying your head and stress isn't in your head stress is throughout your entire what your experience is stress is throughout your entire system and so like come back into your body uh, because there's a lot of people out there who would who do stress all day long but but don't know that it's really affecting them until they have a heart attack in their early 60s. So uh, anyway, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself on that stuff, but that's part of the reason behind the book. And then to come back to the, the second part of my question, do you feel that we are less able to deal with stress? Is the world just inherently more stressful than it was 30, 40 years ago because of technology, social media, all the other things, mm. division, politics of society? Do you feel that that is, a, is an issue, which is why this book is so needed? Yeah. I think there's so many elements to that that we could explore. Um, I'm not a social scientist, but I, I guess I had somebody who's worked with thousands of people as a, as a coach and large groups and often in large groups of, of people in high pressure jobs who after a day or two, when you've got rapport with them and trust that they will actually start opening up and telling you about what's going on. Um, so I do think that the world that people are experiencing a lot more stress. I think one of it is contextual in that we've lost the structure to our um, to our society in a way where once upon a time, if you'd had a bad day at work, you come home, you sit with your family at the table, you can share some of it, or you might just go down the pub with your mates, or you might have a men's group, you know, a men's group. I mean, my grandfather had a men's club that he used to go to. 
I mean, nowadays that's a bit sexist, you know, and uh, he would have, they, they would have been, they'd be pulled out and, and, uh, you know, and, and have women in their face nowadays. But back then, that was where men who worked their asses off all day long, smoked 20, 30 cigarettes, in the evenings they went and that's where they offloaded. And that was good because it meant they weren't getting into fights with their wives and, and the likes. And of course, I'm generalizing wildly. So I think there's a, I do think that because of the, the decay of the modern family or the breakdown of the modern nuclear family, and also this removal of connection between people because of the of digital devices. I think that's one element. Uh, we're overloaded with information, of course, nowadays, the kind of information we could have never dreamed of accessing 20 years ago. Um, the, what comes with information is choice points. What do we believe? What don't we believe? What do we move on? What don't we move on? What do we accept? What don't we... Like, uh, uh, who do we follow? Who don't we follow? Who do we agree with? Who don't we agree with? Also, holy shit, that's happening right now in countries i didn't even know existed because twitter's telling me about it so there's a there's a massive overload of information that the human the human ape the system our system is not designed for that i mean the the as as we all know the the vast majority of our evolution is walking pleasantly through a jungle or through a savanna uh in tune with the environment in taking in with our right hemisphere, the dominant, the sorry, the um, right hemisphere, the, the majority of what's going on unconsciously, the left hemisphere is doing some categorizing for us and telling us that's good, that's bad, that's tasty, that's not. But at no point in human history have we ever had a massive amount of input all day, every day upon demand that we have to know how to decipher. And I think that's uh, hugely um, pressure inducing element to the modern world. I mean, I, we have a rule in our house. We've got a, an 11 year old and a soon to be nine year old son, and we don't allow them to consume any social media. And if they are going to consume some social media, it's in our presence and we explore ideas and we'll use YouTube as a, an education program. Uh, they, they, they really are not they don't have iphones or any smartphones themselves and i get complaints every day from my son i'm not in such and such a group on whatsapp and i want that and it's a hard balance right because you want your kids to be a part of it but i don't want them being in information overload my kids go to bed at 8 30 every night they fall asleep with no problems they never have nightmares they have no anxiety they don't have any what you would call emotional problems whatsoever and part of that is that every night we sit for dinner as a family I mean, I'm not talking advanced techniques right now, right? There's hundreds of advanced techniques here that I've spent my life training. I'm not talking about that. I sit with my kids. I come home from the office. Okay, it's only one minute away, so I'm, I'm privileged. This office where I'm talking to you from, there's one minute from home. But I, every single night at 6.30, I sit with my kids for an hour and a half until 8 p.m. when I go back to work and I have dinner and we explore concepts and we connect with each other and there's never been a screen ever at our dinner table. And at the weekends, I carve out as much of the weekend as I can to be present with my kids. And if they're going to have screen time, it's a special thing. They're not overloaded. They're not concerned about the world as, as an 11-year-old shouldn't be or a 9-year-old shouldn't be. I mean, they, we've been talking about Gaza. We've been talking about the Palestinian and Israeli issue. And I let my kids make up their own mind. I don't impose upon them any views. I give them as much of the evidence as I can. But they're um, they're well adjusted and 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 um, able to handle that kind of information because it's not coming at them from all angles and it's not coming at them in a in a biased feed. 
you've got tens of millions of young people now who have no family structure. They don't really know who they can rely on. They don't know who they can trust. They don't know how they can solve problems in the world because they can't. They can solve some, of course, but they can't. They can't solve the problems of Palestine and Gaza. Like, we're just in this boiling pot of new inputs and pressures that, that our system has never had before. If we could just go back and just feel the threat of a, of a lion stalking on us, it would probably be much nicer, um, you know, in a barefoot walk through the savannah. So, yeah, and those are just some of the elements. There's, there's many, many, many more I could. I, I think, you know, there's, a, there's enough going on in the world now for an adult brain to struggle to, to comprehend it. As you say, when it comes to young children being exposed to this, it's an entirely different set of problems because they don't have the life experience to give a hierarchy to problems or to understand the context like how big a concern is it that you know you've written the book obviously for adults but obviously childhood anxiety and, and rates of mental health among kids has just gone through the roof since covid how concerned are you by that mike and as a follow-up question what can concerned parents start to do would you suggest starting with limiting screen time for instance oh god we do need about 10 hours on this podcast joe I mean, these 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 quite lengthy answers I just gave you were my short versions, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I well, that's good to know. In in fact, because I I feel like I need to settle into this with you because um you're you're asking, even though you're being succinct in the questions, there the reason I don't use Twitter is because I don't know how anyone ever gets anything of any real value across in such short amounts of content, and no one answer you can't ever give an answer that is fully formed really unless it may be data-based you know it's quantitative rather than qualitative uh you can't do that in short form right sometimes it takes a whole book just to, to explain some concepts i'm not doing that by the way to plug it it's just that's a natural thing to go to that book right it doesn't make sense if i point to it that's four, that's four times I'm keeping accounted. I'm really sorry. It's not, it's not that. I'm not doing it for that reason, I promise you. It's just, it's there. Um, I tell you what, let me re-ask the question to try and make it slightly easier then. Um, how concerned are you by kids and, and, and the lack of resilience there? Yeah. And, and yeah. secondly, what, what do you think would be the, the kind of the big rocks in terms of what parents can do who are concerned by this? Yeah. So I'm more concerned about kids than I am about adults. And that's, probably just well it's not probably it's definitely my my preference for kids over most adults um you know my i'm a as a father it, it is my absolute greatest privilege to be a dad to be a father i don't say that to sound like some cool you know m middle-aged dad who uh, uh, on a podcast who is trying to get brownie points it for me it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life other than me and my my wife um and i say that partly probably because I, I i didn't really have a father growing up so for me i get to project into my kids everything that i wanted as a kid although i didn't know i wanted it at the time it's a healing process right like i i value being a five star father and i put all my time and all my attention into being the best i can so i say that because i've got a bias towards your answer which is that of course i'm going to think that it's more important for kids however where do kids learn to be resilient or stressful uh, Stressful, or to do stress? They're, they're always taking it, uh, the lead from the people around them. Um, do you know what mirror neurons are? Have you, no, you've not come across those in your conversations. So um, 
uh, arguably the greatest finding in neuroscience um, in the last century was the finding of mirror neurons. Um, the, the little backstory uh, is that uh, I think it, it was in Palmer. Uh, they were doing some... Monkey see, monkey it's the, do. Yeah, it's the, exactly. Yeah. So you've got a bunch of macaque monkeys who have got some sensors on their brain. And those sensors are monitoring um, uh, motor uh, activity. So when the monkeys, the macaque monkey's arm lifts up, it would show where in the brain that activity is activating, of course. And it shouldn't just be in the brain. It's also through the, all of the central nervous system because we're an embodied embodied mind. You know, we don't just have mind in the, in the brain. We should get onto that as well in this, on this conversation. So anyway, as the story goes, and it's become a part of neuroscience history and legend now, is that uh, some one of the researchers reached for a peanut, or I think it was a peanut, and as he did, and he put his hand in the jar and he pulled the peanut up, he noticed one of the monitors had registered an activity in a part of, in a frontal part of the brain. And he looked at the monkey, but the monkey hadn't moved. But the monkey had watched him pick up the peanut. So he then picked up the peanut again, and the peanut uh, motion registered again in the monkey's brain, or nervous system, brain and nervous system. And um, but in a particular part of the brain. Anyway, from that started the, the research on mirror neurons and the conclusion from it. And there is some debate about it is that mammals are born with a type of neuron that is purely in place to model the the, uh, the adults of the species to replicate the behaviors and to. So before language, and of course, in some species, there is no such thing as language. There's communication, but it's not language. So if I, there's, you were walking before your mum ever told you to put your left foot in front of your right foot and balance and shift. You learned it through the mirror neuron system because you watched others. Same way with the spoon, right? Same with the hug and the kiss and the, all of that. So I say, I tell you that little side because when we're talking about kids and the importance of, of, creating resilient kids, um, it starts at the earliest age. If you have parents who don't know how to choose states other than stress, and, I'll, and I emphasize that word choice, choose, uh, then the kids are going to model stress. My wife is the calmest, most grounded person I know anywhere in the world. And, you know, Nick would, our mutual friends would all agree with that. Never seen her get angry. Never seen her. I've seen her once or twice in 22 years. Never seen her get stressed. Never or do stress. She's just a, a complete rock no matter what happens. I'm I'm actually a much more of a live wire, but I have all these wonderful techniques that I learned. I was a stressed out maniac in my early 20s. Um, and my kids are a reflection of that. I have friends who are just absolute, the calm, nothing phases them. Their kids are a reflection of that. And then, of course, you can flip that and go, those very passionate people who typically don't can choose their states very well and maybe do a lot of anxiety in their homes, you will see a reflection of that in the kids. So my priority is to give kids techniques and patterns, of course, because I have a preference towards children. But if the parents aren't doing it, the kids are going to have to undo the patterns they've learned when they're older, right? And so, of course, I think every new parent should have a manual on how to choose their state in front of their kids. My kids have never seen me angry. 
in in their entire lives. They've seen me a little bit cross and a little bit uh, impatient, but they've never seen me angry. I don't want them having that in their system. I grew up in a in a, a context, an environment where my father was incredibly angry and he was a drunk and you know he used to beat my mother. I mean, my mother was put in hospital multiple times by my father. So I grew up seeing that, and I know it's in my system somewhere. I mean, I've experienced it in my early twenties. Thank God I came, you know, I got mentored and I went through a process of coaching for myself and all of that before I became a coach. But um, I am, I am religiously cautious about my kids modeling states in me that I don't want them to have. So, so that's that answer. Um, and then I think your answer, the, your other question about what else we can do. So one, parents need to be able to be, be more careful around their kids. And I'm not saying don't have, have open conversations with your kids where you explain what's going on. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur and from week to week, I talk about massive deals that could be happening that are life changing. And then the deal go doesn't fall, you know, it falls through. And then there's another one and then there's this going on. And then my kids have been through all of that, but they've never heard me be anxious about it. They've never heard tension. They've heard it from a, yeah, I'm optimistic and I'm excited. And then, oh no, that didn't go through that, that failed. And here's some of the reasons why. And so my kids are used to disappointment. They're used to, to know, they're used to knowing that people let you down. They're used to the way of the world because we have those conversations, but never from a dad who is losing his shit because he can't choose his state. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned choice there because I think for me, the big takeaway from reading your book was you read something, you're like, well, of course, that's so obvious. Why didn't I know that already? Because there's never any kind of separation between your stimulus and your response, right? So many of us are just caught up in this instant reaction. And I wanted to ask you, Mike, about the four choices model that, that you mentioned in the book. You know, the first choice, stay stressed. Second, develop resilience. Third, change the environment. And fourth, leave. And when I was reading that and thinking about myself and people I know, it seems the overwhelming majority of, of anecdotal experience I've had of this is people stay stressed. They, they feel like they don't have a choice. This is the situation. They never really move on to developing re resilience and they certainly don't either have the confidence or believe they've got the choice to change the environment or leave, which I think, again, leave has that connotation of kind of quitting where you, you don't mean that at all. Could you just talk about the role of choice in resilience and stress management? Because I feel once I discovered that, I felt quite empowered. The techniques or what we more accurately call the patterns, and let's define what a pattern is. A pattern is a series of steps that lead to a reliable outcome, right? So if I teach you how to breathe in a certain way, there's a, a in a pattern, I can reliably get the same state out of you from that, that breath pattern. Let's say it's the box breathing that almost everyone's heard of by now, which is four, three seconds in through the nostrils, hold your breath for three seconds, exhale through the mouth, three seconds, hold on the exhale, and then repeat the pattern. It's a very simple pattern. And you'll, you'll invariably get a, a repeatable outcome. You'll feel calm and you'll feel relaxed and your neuro your um your parasympathetic system will switch on and or it will move across from the sympathetic. And this is very good. In in one minute you've gone from um potentially stressed where your heart rate is elevated and your um and your blood pressure is higher and you're breathing faster. And so and in one minute following that pattern you get uh, the outcome. Now for it to be a 
pattern, you can you it goes to a verifiable outcome each time. You'll get a similar sort of state every time you run the breathing pattern. In the morning, if I wake up and I make coffee before I've had food and I drink black coffee on an empty stomach, uh, I know that my my adrenaline will go through the roof because I've had no food and I start to feel what some people would call anxious or ratty first thing. So I never have coffee in the morning before I've had food and sunshine. Never. It's like, because otherwise I'm just the wrong, I'm the wrong person. So I say that because that has a description of a pattern. So my pattern is get up, brush my body, uh, stand in the sun, do a body brush, do some stretching, drink some water with lemon. My wife makes a horrendous cocktail of vitamins and things that taste like death. I drink that. I then have a decaf coffee with lots of milk and sugar. Then I do some exercise. Then I have my breakfast. That's my pattern. So it's a pattern. And I know how I feel at the end of that pattern. So in this book, you've got hundreds of patterns, the techniques that can be used for anything. So they are not fixed patterns just for resilience. Uh, the book is about resilience because it was a, it, it's a response to so many people being stressed or doing stress in the world. Uh, but I could easily take this book and by reframing it and changing some of the text, it could be, it could be, um, it could be about any number of other subjects rather than it being about stress. I say that because your question about choice. So we are mostly driven, we as in humans, we're mostly driven by the unconscious primers that are going on around us. So we grow up in our cultures being taught what to think and how to behave. Now, we can we can either wholeheartedly accept that, we can wholeheartedly reject it, and many people do. It's typically a blend of somewhere in between. I still at 48, having spent the last 25 years observing patterns, find some of my grandmothers in my system that I didn't know were lurking. And then I step back in horror that it's still running and I haven't found a new pattern in that context where it's come out, right? Ah, I thought I got rid of that 20 years ago. <laughs> they, they're like the culture we grew up in and the people around us and our parents, they cast the hardest black magic spells on us because they get us at the earliest stage when the mirror neurons are all fresh and wide and open. They just feed me with habits or patterns of behaviors. So, um, the question of choice is an interesting one because I'm somebody who believes wholeheartedly that whatever happens in my life, I can't just, I c obviously I can't, I can't, um, change the economy. I can't change politics. I can't change, not without committing to it myself. And it's not a commitment I want to take on. I can't change the weather. Uh, I can't change the flood that happened. I can't even actually, though I've tried for three years, change my neighbors behavior for burning plastic, uh, rather than giving it to us to recycle. That's another story. There's a big fight that goes on here about that almost every day. Um, all I can do is change my, my response and I can change my response by changing the meaning of the event. And I can change my state by running some certain techniques, breathing patterns, etc. But the big, the big piece for all of us is the choice of how we perceive how we apply meaning to the world around us. So meaning is not inherent in anything, right? There's no meaning in this podcast beyond what you and I give it. There's no meaning to me being a father beyond what I give it. There's no meaning to a friendship beyond what you give it. There's no meaning to a smite, to a 
uh, an insult. Uh, Joe, God, since the last time I spoke to you, you've got some gray hair in your beard. Right. And by the way, so have I. Now you can, no, if I didn't say it with that, with that, with that intonation, and I said, Hey, Joe, since the last time I saw you, you have some gray hair in your beard. I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. You can make of it what you want, right? I mean, you could go, I know I'm wizened. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that compliment that, that you're applying to me that I'm old enough now. Cause when you met me before, I was wet behind the ears 12 years, 13 years ago. Yeah. Every gray hair represents more knowledge and wisdom. You can apply that meaning to it, right? You have that choice. We're told because of the absurd culture that we live in. Um, certainly now because of the way that I see this. I mean, I don't have my finger on the pulse in, in modern culture. I'm a bit of a, almost a country bumpkin recluse living in a farming village in Bali. But I see that one of the problems that in the world with younger generation is that they live in a cause effect world where you said this to me and you insulted me. I mean, this is, um, identity politics and it's, and all of the stuff that I see on Twitter that people are getting offended because you said you, you use the word fat or people are getting offended because you use the word female or people are getting offended because you don't believe in the same political system as them. Or can I say that Israelis have a right to defend themselves? And can I say that Palestinians have a right to break out of the world's largest prison? Right. Uh, can I say that without other people saying you've offended me? Can I have the choice myself that you turn around and go, God, Mike, you've got some serious wrinkles since the last time I saw you. And my God, Mike, uh, you, yeah, you, you look terrible. Oh God, Mike, you're fucking waffling on on this podcast, aren't you? Talking too much. You know, I only wanted a one minute answer and I can choose to respond to that however I want. But I think the number one problem is that we are now in a world where we've been taught that we are at effect of the cause and we're not. And we talk about that in the book. I was about to pick it up again then. Talk about that in the book, in the, the initial chapters, which is about cause and effect. So uh, my favorite analogy for this or example of this is if I stand in a field and I have a football in front of me and off to the side is a engineer or a mathematician or a scientist, somebody who knows the equation that's about three or 400 years old, that they measure the wind speed, they measure the surface area of the ball, they measure the weight of the ball, and then they, they measure the, the um, transfer of energy from the foot and the angle of the foot because from the speed of the kick. And all of those elements, they work out the equation. I wouldn't be able to do it, but somebody smart could. And then they can, they can tell where the ball's going to land. I'm sure an AI could do it in two seconds. Again and again, I can kick 10, 20, 30, 40 balls and an AI can say where the ball's going to land or the engineer can say it. Uh, because this is a true cause-effect relationship. The cause is the kick and the effect is that the ball has gone 20 meters, in my case, probably 10 and plopped off to the left. Now change the ball for a different object and you still know its surface area, you still know its weight, you still know um, or the wind speed and all the other elements. Uh, but the, the you also know what the object ate in the morning because you weighed it as well. And it's a cat. Now you put the cat in front of me. Now I kick the cat metaphorically for cat lovers out there. I've never kicked a cat in my life. I quite like cats. Can't eat a whole one. Um, but do you like them? Uh, <laughs> that's a dad joke. <laughs> I had to get it in there. Um, so now I kick the cat. Can I, can you predict where the cat's going to go? 
Can the AI predict where the cat's going to go using the same measurements and models? Think about it. Just kick the cat. I know what it weighs. I know the wind speed, da, la, la, all that sort of thing. Correct. I can't predict where the cat's going to go because this cat, the, the first cat that I kicked metaphorically, um, it grabbed onto my ankle and it bit me. The second cat went left and ran off to the bush. The third cat did super cat and put its claw. The fourth cat did a cartwheel. The fifth cat turned and bit me on the balls. The sixth cat and onwards and onwards. Now, if you do enough cats over 10,000, you'll start seeing patterns emerge. You know, 550 cats bit the ankle, 700 cats did the Superman, etc. But you can't predict the individual cat because it has choice. You can't predict where it's going to go. The board does not have choice. We live in a world now where we've been told, I don't know if it's for political reasons or just because people are stupid, but we're being told that if I kick you, you have to respond like a ball in a cause-effect relationship, right? If I, if I reach through the screen now and I, and I pinch your nose or I punch you in the arm, how many ways do you have to respond? Well, first of all, you'd be blown away because reach through the screen. That's, but if we're together and I push you, how many ways do you have to respond? You have an infinite degree. You could kiss me. You could hug me. You could punch me in the face. You could walk away. You could pour a glass of water over me. You could do a song. You could do a dance. You could recite Shakespeare and on and on and on and on and on. And why is it any different in the world now that we're told that if you call me the wrong name or you misgender me or you mention something about the way that I, uh, that I look or I sound or who I, uh, my politics or who I rep, blah, 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 that you've deeply, horribly offended me. That's a choice. And I say all of this, I don't want to get political, but I say all of this because it's a, I think it's a very strong example of why people now in the world are doing stress instead of resilience or just being or doing stress instead of just calm happy states or or just just uh reasonable states is because they are living in a cause effect relationship with the world where you do x and i have to do y there is no other response and that is unbelievably dangerous it's the first time in the history of our species that that is the case we could talk for hours and hours and hours about how we've ended up in this state. But for practical advice, I think there's some people who are want to be outraged. They're almost waiting for a comment so they can react. I also think there's an awful lot of people who have probably just been caught up in this and don't really want to react, but they, they're almost just compelled to because that's what they're seeing going on around them. As I mentioned earlier, Mike, that you know this space between the stimulus or the insult and then your reaction, I mean, that's that's the holy grail, right? That's space in between if you can delay it because that's where you can learn and modify your response, decide how you want to react. And I feel that in the world today, no one has that millisecond because it might only be a millisecond you need just to take a breath or put your tongue into the bottom of your jaw, which I want to talk about later. But what's your advice for people to to forge that millisecond, that half a beat in this world to try and separate the cause and effect and just give themselves a little bit more choice, a little bit more control? Mm. Well, the first question is before you find yourself in the context where you lose control or you lose your state, as I would say, is to really identify what kind of person you want to be in the world. So I think there are, unfortunately, pe nowadays people's attention are, are on far too many external issues 
rather than focusing on at least initially working on themselves. So I think there are most likely, and again, I'm generalizing, but there are most likely many people who wouldn't even want to hear this conversation about taking responsibility for choosing their own response in the world. And you have to choose your state before your outward behavior. And I'll get onto that in a sec. So the reason you can you can find people who are okay with that is because typically the less responsibility that you take on, the easier your life is in the short term. Now it comes with a whole range of long-term consequences. I mean, we there's a book uh, that we regularly use the title of at home, which is Hate Me Now, Love Me, uh, and Thank Me Later, when in parent-child rearing, right? When, when there's a hard no on something, yeah, hate me now, but you'll thank me when you're an adult. Uh, that's kind of the motto in our house. And I think that that pattern, that is indicative of of most people nowadays. It's it's hear me now, do what I say, agree with me, uh, desire me, love me, uh, like me, press like now, and let's not think about the consequences later. And then the consequences come in later and they're much, 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 much worse. So... Um, uh, what was the question I've got? How people can create? You know, I oh guess yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. In, they want and then then react in in the way that most replicates yeah. they they want to be. Yeah. So I so I I went down that little rabbit hole only because people aren't going to give a shit about how they can change that reaction unless they first defined what sort of person they're going to be. I've got a whole bunch of techniques that I can give to anyone that can change their really genuinely change their life and change their experience of the world. Um, I mean, I say that I didn't develop most of these techniques. I was lucky to be mentored by one of the most intelligent men on earth for a decade. And he helped transform my life by giving me the same patterns that I've been teaching for the last 20 odd years and they're in the book, etc. So um, those techniques are there. But one thing that I've noticed that are training many, many hundreds of people and coaching thousands of people is that you can lead a horse to water, but you can never force it to drink. And a lot of people just don't want to put the little bit of effort in that it takes to take responsibility for the experience that they're having in the world. And I say that with a sort of heavy, heavy heart, to be honest, because I am actually, I'm a great advocate for humanity. I like people. I like humans. I don't buy into this anti-human view of the world where um, I'm an environmentalist as well, but I don't put envir the environment before humans. I think we can have both. Um, I like the human race mostly i know we're a bunch of lunatics as well but i mostly like it but on my school small level of impact that i can have with people doing the work that i do i'm mostly disappointed because i can be in a room with people for three days and teach them all these amazing techniques and then i find out six months later that those people have never used them right and it's not because we know that i mean i know i'm a good trainer and i'm a good teacher and I don't say that from an egotistical perspective. I know the impact that I can have. People are lazy and people often don't don't want to put that bit of effort in. And and I think for some, not all, but for some, that is that arises from a lack of awareness of how the, who they want to be in the world. So many people that I've come across just go from day-to-day -day consuming and getting through their lives and just 
making it to Netflix in the evening or to the pub or to whatever it is. And I'm not criticizing people's choices, but how many people do you know who truly take time out to step back and say, who do I want to be in the world? What are my governing principles? What are my, what are my, what are my ethics? What are my, what are the patterns that I want my children to see or the people around me? Who do I want to inspire? Who do I, how do I want to lead? Even if I'm not a formal leader, maybe I'm an informal leader in my community. How do I want people to perceive me? And, but more importantly, when I look in the mirror, who do I know that I am? And I don't think young people are asked to, uh, or pre- given these types of questions enough these days. If they are and when they are, and if they do want to make a difference. So I was building up, you know, all of that to this point. Then, yeah, of course, there's a, there's a bazillion ways of not reacting in that gap, what you're talking about between the stimulus and the response. Um, the first one is to, is to, I think, actually draw upon who, who or what that identity is that you want to create for yourself. I mean, you'll never see me lose my shit in an argument because I like the view of myself as being the calm rock, no matter what goes. I mean, my wife in 22 years, she said the only time she's ever seen me flap about something was when my son broke his arm for the second time. And actually it was with our friend Nick on a trampoline and it all wobbled and, it would, and you know, just the suffering in my kid for the second time. And I just had this sense of him having another two months in plaster. He was only five or six years old. And that was the one time that she seen me lose it for about five minutes. Otherwise, my identity's too attached. I'm not talking about me here. I'm talking. I hope this is people get that this is replicable. You know, these are just these are just representations of what I think are useful for people. But I have an identity of being a strong, solid, always there for my family, always there for my friends, always there for the people who need me, always, always there in an emergency. If the plane goes down, I'll be the last guy off. I'll never go through that door. Those are the kind of old-fashioned principles that I adhere to. Not because I grew up with those, the opposite. Those are the ones I've chosen. And I think it's really important that in a world where everyone's so seemingly, seemingly overreactive and so wanting immediate gratification and immediate acknowledgement, that if you take a step back and ask who you really want to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and create, start working towards that identity. Now, there's also basic techniques. You can take a step back from any stimulus, literally a physical step back, and look at yourself in the position you just, so you're hallucinating yourself, seeing as if you're really there, yourself in that moment. You've now created a physical dissociation. And that, in the majority of cases, will lower any kind of, un, uh, let's say, unresourceful state right? Where you're about to overreact. You're about to make an angry response, a snide comment. You're about to scream in someone's face because you're a vegan and they're not agreeing with you because they're drink having an ice cream. Whatever absurd reaction it is. I mean, maybe not absurd for them, but absurd for us. Take a step back, physical step back, maybe take two or three steps back, but look at what the space you just occupied and see Mike in that space about to react. And then take some deeper, slower breaths, body scan. So scan your attention up and down your body. Notice where the tension is. And um, in that moment, and then you can do this in seconds, especially if you've trained it. It took, I, I mean, I trained this a lot because I was very reactive in my early twenties. Now it's just second nature. I mean, I just, I'm not a reactive person anymore, but to be able to train this in a safe environment, 
So this is running a body scan, immediately changing your breathing to a slower nasal breathing, maybe the box breathing I mentioned earlier. But but most importantly, that step away and looking back at yourself, having that third perspective. And I don't know anyone, anyone who, when they do this, doesn't immediately have more access into a resourceful state so that they can actually have a better choice in how they respond. As an extension from that, another thing I really loved in the book, Mike, was placing attention. So you said, take a step back and look at how you look in that situation, but extending that by the second person, trying to put yourself in the position of the person you're about to have the argument with, and then by extension, again, a third person, the onlooker. I love this concept. And again, another thing in your book that just seems so simple when someone else points it out to you, this, this tool or this technique of being able to step back, who do I want to be, but also where are they coming from? And what does this look like to an onlooker? It's almost like the secret source of, of building empathy into a situation, which is probably lacking from so many interactions we have today, especially online, right? Yeah, definitely. And so just to be clear, uh, in our book, we have a lot of a lot of these patterns that we didn't develop. So uh, the genius of these techniques that I'm talking about, well, first of all, we go back to Milton, sorry, to um, uh, Gregory Bateson, who for me is one of the greatest intellectuals to have ever walked the earth. Uh, he was a uh, an anthropologist um, and studied cultures all around the world, but he was a mathematician and uh, a, a great scientist. And he was one of the first to really notice these different perceptual positions that people inhabit. And then John Grinder, who is, was my mentor for a decade, who again is equally uh, one of the greatest minds, I think, to have walked the planet. And maybe I got a rub off of 0.01% of what he actually knows over 10 years. But um, John then codified what Bateson had found in his studies as an anthropologist. And by codified, I mean he'd taken some of the theoretical elements and put them into practical steps that we that we then present in the book. And I say that because I think there's too many people out there trying to take credibility for things they didn't develop. That's not my gig. I'm, I would, I've never been smart enough to come up with stuff like this, like those two geniuses. Anyway, um, your point about the let's just go into the three perceptual positions. So you have the first position, which is the I, which when I'm screaming at you because you don't agree with my vegan views, uh, as I see you eating into eating that doner kebab, I'm in first position. This is all about me. A professional athlete, when they're running or competing in a high-level competition, should be in first position. They should be, They should be sensing everything that's going on in their system. When I'm rock climbing and my fingertips are on a hold that is tiny and my feet are on a hold that's tiny, I am in first position. I'm not thinking about my kids. I'm not thinking about uh, that meeting that I have tomorrow and how that person is going to perceive me. I'm in first position. Um, certain politicians, famous politicians, uh, typically seem to live in first position. They don't. They don't know what it's what the perception of them is, or they are. Um, is God? I sound like I'm going into gender. Ideology. <laughs> I don't know. Holy crap. Stay away from this. Yeah, 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 don't worry. They don't know what the perception of themselves is from other people's perspectives because they're just in first position. All those egomaniacs, when we say an egomaniac and somebody who's overly, no, there's benefits. You've got to have a strong first position, right? The, the partner who spends their entire life falling over in a subservient manner to their partner and always being concerned about their partner being upset. For, and not well fed and and whatever it is they live 
um, they live too too much in second position and they don't have enough of a first position for themselves. I know what I like. I know what I want. I know what I don't want. And I have an incredible relationship with my wife and I believe it's in, almost entirely from learning in the early days of our relationship because we both went on the same courses and learned this stuff 22 years ago. We learned how to take second positions on each other. So the second position is me perceiving what it's like to be you, Joe. And actually, as I did that, I thought I better speed up some of these answers because he'd be falling asleep otherwise. But the second position is me being able to project myself into another. Now, this is uh, good therapists do this really well. Uh, good parents do it really well. If you're an authoritarian parent who is always imposing first position, my rules and my, you're going to have a real problem when your kids hit, hit the teenage years and you can't impose the authority anymore. You're also going to have kids who can't think for themselves. You're going to have unresilient kids because they've never had to make choices. And so when they go out in the world and they make choices, they're not used to the consequences of making choices that weren't right. They don't know how to make mistakes. My kids make endless mistakes and they learn from them and iterate and we lick their wounds or they lick their wounds and we get on with it and we recover from it. So um, I know that my way is, is the best way as a 48 year old, but when I go second position, I sound like Nick now, don't I? when I go second position on my children, I realize that my way, the best way is not what they're looking for. They're looking for a way to express their curiosity and to learn in the world and experience in the world. So I'll, so when I go second on my wife and I look back at Mike, my God, I sounded really aggressive when I told her there was no milk in the fridge. I sounded really aggressive when I told her that uh, I don't think that uh, tomorrow morning is a good time to be going off surfing because I have a meeting. Blah, blah, blah. And I, but it, I'm, I'm perceiving Mike from her perceptual position, not from mine. So I don't know how anyone can have a good relationship if they don't have a, a, an ability to get a second position. And most people do. They know how to go second. And then you've got third position, which is the neutral observer. This is the, uh, the doctor who has to say to a, a parent, I'm sorry, your child has a terminal illness and a short period of time to live. If they're in first position, they're probably going to, or second position, they're probably going to feel a little bit too much. So they go into an emotion-free, objective, almost like a computer. Now, this is really useful to have for ourselves because we can step out of our first position where we make most of our, typically make most of our errors, and we can look at ourselves and we can observe the patterns. We can observe the behaviors. And as objective as we can get, we can say, that's not working. Here's the consequences. So I recommend doing it this way. Now, the studies uh, out of the US, and they're quite old now, over a decade, I think, they show that even by changing your language about a what... So I, 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 um, I disagree that there's any such thing as a stressful event. But let's use that just terminology for now but an event that somebody had a stressful response to even by saying uh, mike was in a car crash yesterday and mike in that car crash hurt his neck and saw a lot of blood and mike mike panicked in the car crash because when he looked to the right the per the driver was dead 
So by saying that, instead of saying yesterday I was in a car crash and I hit my head and I and I was there was a lot of blood and I looked across and my driver was dead, just that change in third pers- position perspective language lowers the stress response, and by that I mean it lowers the the cortisol and it it switches the sympathetic to parasympathetic considerably. I think it's like thirty or forty percent decrease in heart uh, in elevated heart rate um, and and the various biomarkers. So a much better way of doing it, unfortunately, these studies have, have clearly not read the works of John Grinder and, and the likes, but a better way is to actually not just use the language pattern, but to step back and see yourself in that event rather than feeling it as if it was happening. When I say, ah, oh, I had the most lovely morning this morning walking along the beach. As I talk about that in first position, I get a warmth of walking along the beach. I did have a lovely morning this morning walking along the beach. Right now, if I said uh, I had a I had a horrible time this morning walking along the beach. Somebody came up to me and they were really abusive, and oh, I feel traumatized. I'm reliving it again, and I'm reinforcing actually the pattern of the memory. If I say this morning Mike walked along the beach and somebody ran up to him and got abusive, and uh, it was not an experience that he appreciated. There's and I see Mike on the beach. So I'm not reliving it internally. I see him out there. That completely changes my experience of it, right? Um, so I'll keep the lovely warm experience in first position. When my kids come running up to me and say, Daddy, we love you, which they typically do every day, I want to be in first position. I want to experience all of it. I want to take it all on. Uh, when I hear that my... Uh, oh, God, I almost went into first position then, right? Um, when I so uh, so uh, well, we've got a friend who's a very very close friend whose child is ten years old and is dying of a. I say dying. I shouldn't say that. They have a brain tumor, um, and it and it's been critical for many months. And when I think about them, I have to think about it in a third. I have to be in a third neutral observer. My first is fighting to come in right there, and my second on the parents. You know, because they're so close to us, and I love them so much, and loves a first position. It's a feeling. I have to go into non-love when I think about it because otherwise it's too much. And so I have to see it over there at some distance. Mike's interacting with them, but I don't want to feel it, the the heartache of the, or whatever term I would use, of the fact that there's a little boy struggling with his life from a brain tumor. So being able to blend these perceptual positions is really important. And people do it naturally, but a lot of people overdo one at the expense of the other. And it sounds as though there, Mike, in that example, that heartbreaking example you gave, it is a work in progress. It's not, it's something that you, that, that always, you're not just there. It's something that you just have to continuously work at. But what I think, if there's one thing I'm going to take away from the book, and that there are plenty more than one, it's this ability to move between those positions. To me, feels like I could eliminate 97, 98% of the conflict and the stressful situations in my life because it's building in that empathy, that compassion. It's taking a step back and forcing a gap between stimulus and response. Do you feel like a lot of people, obviously you put it in the book, so you must do, but do you feel that most people's day-to-day life struggles could take on a different meaning by, by adopting this? I don't know how people survive without a third position and I don't know how relationships survive without the ability to go second position. So let's just be clear here. We are not highlighting a technique that has just come out of some tech company in California. We're talking about something that has been around for as long as humans 
of being able to perceive other. And maybe the objective view, the third position, is a more relatively recent aspect to our neurology. Um, I think that for the for the 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 primitive I just use that loosely as a description, but the primitive humans that we once were walking through a wilderness, we probably lived mostly in second position so that we knew what our mates were doing and that, 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 that especially in a hunting party, for instance. So soccer, football players, team players, they have to have a good second position. They have to know what their other team members and the best ones who know how to deliver a ball on the nose of the person at the right place. They're, they're detecting in second position, but they're also in first position as they're running around themselves, feeling the ball and drawing on the patterns in their body that get that ball in the goal or get it to the, and then, so that's switch swap, switch swap, it's fast swapping between positions. Um, so I think the majority of our, our evolutionary period would have probably been in first and second position. And third has come about more as we require, um, uh, an objective, view on the world but or not on the world but on ourselves in the world sorry i don't know how people exist without a third i don't know how people operate on a day-to-day basis without being able to take a step back and view every single day how was i doing how did i do what do i need to change because otherwise all you do is keep repeating the same old unresourceful patterns the same old dumb shit and creating disasters in your life. Now, that's not to say that all people do is unresourceful, dumb patterns, but we all do them, right? So I use a technique in the in the evenings, typically where before I finish in the office. I like to work after dinner, after my kids have gone to bed. I like to come back to the office for a couple of hours, quiet time, make some calls with a few people, but mostly just get work finished. And I use a technique where I uh, visualize a old-fashioned film strip and in that is my day. So it's from the moment I woke up and I see, so I'm not, uh, so I see Mike in the film strip getting out of bed. Now I'm not in the nuance of like just walking into the bathroom and taking a pee and all that. It's like, there's the morning, there's the, uh, there's the early morning and the calls that I have. So I look at the day right up to the point where I'm in the office looking at it. And then I, <coughs> I look through it and ah, the way I, behaved in that meeting or the way that I reacted in that moment or the way I decided to not go to the gym and have a workout uh, where I made an excuse or I procrastinated on that piece of work that I knew I should have got done today or I bought a Coca-Cola instead of drinking sparkling water. I like really like Coca-Cola. So let's not say that one, but I did. So I'm looking for small events that I would like to have a, 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 choice point around and make a better choice then i pull those down out of the strip maybe there's two or three yeah then i am then i so i'm i'm essentially in a third position here looking at my day then i identify i think what would i have preferred him to do okay i would have preferred mike to to actually train even if it was just for 30 minutes before dinner instead of being on his phone looking at instagram so then I go into the image and you don't, it doesn't have to be some bright, really exact version of this. You just get a sense. I go into the image. Now I'm in first position. I'm actually mic in that scene with my phone, looking at Instagram, 
when I'm next to my gym and I could have worked out, I'm making these scenarios up, right? Of course, I'd never look at Instagram over training in the gym. Of course, I wouldn't. Never, never. Uh, <laughs> uh, so now I'm in the scene. I'm in it, first position. And now I adjust in that first position where I've put the phone down and I've gone in the gym and I've trained. Now I step back out into third. I put the scene back in and I notice how it changes uh, the the next sequence in it. So I would have had a better evening had I done 30 minutes in the gym. You can do this. And if you do this every night or you do it the next morning from the day before, some people prefer to do it the day before. I like to do it in the nighttime because I like to sleep on it. The unconscious processes, the changes you've made and all the information. Our dreams are really just a, a montage of the information that we're processing from the day. So I like to sleep on it, but some people like to do it first thing in the morning from yesterday, from the day before. And what I've found is by doing this, it enables me to have much more perception of choice points in the day. Because it's likely that I'm going to be repeating similar patterns anyway. The gym tonight, it's 4.44 here. At 5-ish, 5.30, I typically go to the gym and do an hour's workout. We have our own gym here, a little one, before dinner. So I can guarantee tonight I won't be looking at Instagram and skipping my gym session because we just discussed it. And it's now alive in my system. Now how important it is for me to get my workout in. I didn't work out yesterday, so I definitely will today. So it's really, it's so the, this is really useful to be able to take that third position. And I use that metaphor, really, a visual metaphor of a film strip. You can do whatever you want. You can just see yourself at different points in the day. How would you change yourself? Then zoom in, be in that event, change it, pop back out, notice the difference. What this doing is training your perception to be able to notice these choice points throughout the day and add a new one, uh, a new better behavior. That visual viewpoint of, of analyzing your day and reinforcing the positive habits you want is incredibly useful for people on an everyday basis to make those better decisions. And it leads on to I think the most profound example from the book, Mike, is when you talk about reimagining trauma and you give the example of your, your old in a, in a swimming pool and how you've changed your, not necessarily your recollection of that, but the re-imaging of that so that you learn the lessons but don't still feel that that in instinctive panic. Can you tell a little bit about that story and what you mean by reimagining trauma? Because I think there's going to be an awful lot of people watching this who are haunted by an event in the past who can't move past it and that's affecting their ability to be resilient. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I've worked with many, many hundreds of people with, with PTSD and I'm in clinical level five PTSD, uh, with, with a lot of veterans. Uh, I went to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010 and I thought I was going over there to work, to support the psychologists, uh, who had, I'd, and psychiatrists who I'd assumed had gone over there to work with the Haitians. And I worked with Sean Penn here at JPHRO. Um, he took over a golf course in an emergency and he had 50,000 people come in. These are internally displaced people. So they're not refugees. They're, their homes are there or they're, they're, most of their homes have collapsed. And so they were living under blue tarpaulin tents and Sean Penn for love him or hate him. Um, he just did an incredible job of getting food and shelter and medicine and the likes. So I went there to, you know, I'm not a qualified medical practitioner. I've done a first aid course or two. Um, and I went over there to support the the psychiatrists and psychologists. When I got there, there weren't any. Uh, there were literally none. And on the morning 
of my introduction to the medical team who are proper medical experts and workers and they said so uh mike the psychotherapist is here and i go uh, just to be clear i'm not a psychotherapist i came over to help you guys and they're like f yeah great but we've got hundreds of people every day with uh with trauma and um somebody needs to work with them and so i spent a number of months working with i went from having three or four clients in a day in london in my fancy kensington studio to working in what was meant to be a dentist uh, uh tent with hundreds of haitians with some of the worst trauma that you could ever imagine and i say that because the techniques that i utilize there in a language where i didn't even know i, I don't speak creole and i don't speak french i had a translator but with people who had never had any exposure to these types of techniques and and didn't have a any kind of placebo effect i mean there is a, there is some degree because they're coming to see a medical they assume a medical expert um we just had the most incredible uh cessations of traumas the, the medical people i worked with that a couple of them said you've got magic powers i don't i'm using techniques that i didn't develop and again i'm saying this because i'm not taking credit i'm good at applying this stuff but i didn't create these techniques uh these techniques actually come from um the field of nlp neurolinguistics programming which unfortunately has a really bad rap in the world because it doesn't have a scientific basis to it it does actually there's a lot of scientific studies that back up but it just it was just too loose in its approach and too many people could go on a two week course and get a certificate and go out there in the world and start doing it and you know i'm one of those people but i just happened to dedicate a decade of well 15 years of my life to to verifying it and making it uh, work at a very um high level so but these techniques work by changing the representation system uh the way that you represent an an experience so if you think about a memory now if you think about a uh, just right now think about a memory that is really pleasant to you any really pleasant memory right got it so i don't want to know the content because that's private one of the beautiful things about these techniques you don't need to know the content so if i'm working with somebody who's traumatized because they've been raped i don't need to know the details of that and i think it's incredibly unethical that anyone would want to know the details it's like watching a it's like you know being invited to a private movie um and as a therapist i'm not a therapist but as a th- a therapist they should never want to know the content but those models anyway again that's another conversation but they're unethical in my opinion so that memory that you recalled Yeah. Um when you think about that memory are you were you in it or are you uh looking at Joe? So are you in the third or a first? You're in it. Yeah. You're in first. So you're seeing and hearing it through your own through your own sensory system. Yeah. And um when you recall that memory is it in color or black and white? Color. And uh if you were to um to identify a temperature in that memory what would that be? I know there's sounds in that memory. You don't need to tell me what they are, but I only need to know if there are sounds. And when you are experiencing that that memory, is it moving or is it static? It's moving. Yeah. So this is a pleasant memory, and it's nice to have pleasant memories and you probably as you started to remember it then felt a little bit of the elicitation of what that memory was like because that's 
That's how we survive in the world. We have to be able to recall in what we use this term feelings in our sensory, in our kinesthetic sensory part of our system. We have to know what it was like to put our hand in a hot fire. If we don't have that ability to know, then we'll keep burning ourselves, right? We have to know that when we rub up against a th- the opposite sex, it feels good if that's our thing and we're able to make babies from it because that's what we're designed to do as a species. So we have to have this system of being able to remember. And um, if I didn't ask you to have an unpleasant memory because I don't want to go there on the podcast, but you could equally do it and you would start to elicit an unpleasant memory. Now, what's trauma? It's a it's a memory that you don't want this the sensations from. Can you change the history of that memory? I mean, can you go back in time and change it? No, it happened. So what can we do that gives us back agency? We can change the association of the memory. Now, if I'm remembering something in full color and moving and I'm associated and I'm in it, and that is a that is what we would call a traumatic memory, I have a certain degree of variables here that I can change. I can change the color from to black and white. I can first and foremost change the fact that I'm, if I'm associated, I looked across in my own eyes and I saw the dead driver. Now it's take me out and let me see Mike in the chair looking across at the driver. So I've created one level of dissociation because I've gone essentially a third. I saw Mike, I see Mike in the chair looking at the driver. Now I've changed all that red blood to black and white. And you know, it was, it was, it was icy cold. Well, I've warmed it up a little bit to a, to a point where it feels okay. Uh, and I, and he was, he was twitching. Well, I've made it, now I make it static instead of him moving. And it was big and full and in my, so now I reduce the size and I make it smaller. And actually I might even put it in a little box of some kind. And so the memory that you, or the event that you referred to in the book, uh, I was in, Los Angeles and I lived in LA and my neighbors had a swimming pool and their 12 or 13 year old kids said, can we take your kids next door to play? Of course you can. This is my four year old kid and my two year old kid at the time. And so they take them next door for whatever reason. I went, went next door three, four, five minutes later. And I stood at the door talking to my neighbor and my four year old son came back through his house. And he would, he tip, he's very polite, my four-year-old. Well, he's, now he's 11. He's incredibly polite, but he wouldn't have interrupted. But he said, daddy, and there was something in his voice tone that caught my attention. And normally I would say, not while I'm talking, love, just wait one moment. We have this thing where if he wants my attention, he pinches me twice. And I pinch him back to let him know that I know he's waiting for me. But he didn't do that. He said, daddy. And so I turn, I say, yes, love. And he says, Obi's going swimming. And I said, that's lovely. Now, they run swimming lessons out in their pool, but they don't have a fence around it. And I said, that's lovely. Who's he swimming with? He said, on his own. And I said, oh, but he can't swim. And he said, I know. And that was a that was a point where I, in a split second, ran through the house to see the 13-year-olds all sat on the sofa looking at the TV and the back door open. And when I got out there, my two-year-old son was about a foot underwater fighting for his life to get to the surface in their, in their hot tub next to their pool. And I dived in and I pulled him out 
and he took a deep breath and started crying and then said horsey and pointed down and there was a tiny little horsey toy at the bottom of the hot tub now as a parent you see you're going through it with me aren't you right now as i recalled that memory then i recalled all of the bit where iggy my four-year-old came out to me and told me it was all in full color and i was talking to my neighbor in full color but what happened is as i ran out to the pool because what happened after i'd taken him to hospital and gotten checked over i came home and both my wife and i started to have what would have you know started to touch on like a ptsd response what would happen if we hadn't gone through what would happen if i hadn't gone next door what would happen if iggy well my son would be dead and children die all the time in swimming pools that don't have fences around them. And my son would have been one of those statistics. And so I started experiencing uh, a, a, a very undesirable signal in me. By the way, what is this signal? It's my unconscious, which is not a mythical thing. It's the, it's the pattern recognition in, in my, my brain and nervous system that says, don't let this happen again, moron right? Do not let your child near a pool like this on his own again. That's why the response is coming in. It's teaching me. Do not. Okay. So I acknowledge, hey, I got this unconscious. Thanks. I got the signal, but it's not dampening. So then what I did was was to reimagine, not reimagine, but to recall the event. And I took it into black and white and I made it smaller and it still wasn't doing it. So then I did something that, that worked for me immediately and I turned the whole event into a pencil line drawing. And so from the moment I came out of the door to see my child underwater, everything goes, there's that um, aha song, Take On Me, where there's like this, I don't know if you remember the video, where there's this woman looking into a drawing and the singer's in there and, and I saw it all like that. And so I saw my son underwater fighting for his life as a pencil drawing, all moving. But it was all it was all two dimensional. It wasn't three dimensional, and I'm remembering it that way now because that's how I've codified the memory. And as I remember it, as you can probably detect, I don't have any of that traumatic response in my voice because it doesn't sit in my system anymore. I never, I, I did not ever do anything to remove the the signal around my son and water. Now he's an amazing swimmer and he swims in the ocean and dives under waves and he's you know he's like a fish thankfully. But um, for the two years after that, until he became adept at swimming, whenever we were near water, my unconscious signaled me to be on high alert. But I have no trauma from the event because I, I, I um, reworked it in my memory as a pencil line drawing. Anyone can do this. And obviously, depending on the level of trauma, would you say that this is going to diminish that initial response. You may not ever get to a place where you seem to be now, Mike, where you can recall it seemingly devoid of any emotion, where obviously that must be one of the most stressful experiences of, of any parent's life. But you're saying that even if you're never going to be completely able to discuss something without emotion, you can definitely dampen that response to, to a significant life-changing degree. Yeah, I think there's a good question is, whose nervous system is it? Right. Whose nervous system is is it that you happen to be observing through? Whose nervous system is it that you happen to be experiencing the world through? If it's your nervous system, your and by your, I, let's use the word neurology to uh, encompass the brain and the nervous system all as one system. If it's your neurology, who owns it? Right. The problem is, as I mentioned earlier, in a different way, is that we're being told that we don't own it. 
And of course, in some small, well, not small, actually, in some large way, we don't in that we're so influenced and primed by our environment. We're so primed. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, try on a, on a Zoom call where you don't have to say anything and you're just on it as a, as an, a listener, like on a conference call. Try sending messages to people and writing without having some of the words that the person is saying on the Zoom call prime you to use those words. So let's say they say, yeah, so we've got a new system and you're writing to your friend about going to the pub and you'll go, yeah, I'll see you at the pub later. I just need to get through the traffic system to get to you. And you'll be primed to use a, a word. This is how it works. This is how we are all the time. Uh, I'll give you one of my favorite examples. Um, as you know, Jay, uh, Bean and I, my wife Bean, we spent over two years with the Osbournes, as in Sharon and Ozzy and, and Jack's like family to us. I was messaging him just this morning. Um, and we were in a climbing wall in Colorado and we hadn't seen Jack in a while and Jack had not come up in conversation. And my wife had just come down from the climb and as she touches the floor, she looks at me and says, ah, oh, I really, really miss, miss Jack. I'd really like to see Jack. And I, she's just got to the top of this climb and come down. I'm like, well, uh, what made you think of that? She said, oh, I don't know. It just came to me. And then I realized in the background on the music playing was Ozzy. It was a, right? Now we're not, I love Ozzy. He's a friend of ours, uh, but I'm not a Black Sabbath fan. I don't even know his repertoire of songs. But we knew that particular song. I think it's one of the famous ones. And my wife was primed. So we're primed all the time. And But to the best of our abilities, it's our responsibility to say, whose nervous system is this that's making these choices to, to, to run with traumatic memories? Now, some people, there's something called secondary gain. Some people want to keep their problems because they get nice attention or they get payouts or they get disability benefits or they get, insurance or that you know there's a well-known is it a phenomena or is it just a pattern um but there's a well yeah there's a well-known pattern of people who have been hit off their bikes or had injuries they, their pain won't go away until after they've got their payout and they're not doing it by the way they're not key the, the the unconscious is keeping it there because it's much better to have the pain there until you get the payout right and when you get the payout you start to miraculously heal so, but whose nervous system? I refuse to allow events to interfere with the way that I manage my own neurology, my own brain and nervous system. Um, I, I take full responsibility for it. Nobody else is running it for me.